Before we start the show, a reminder to follow all of our political reporting on the NPR One app. That's N-P-R-O-N-E. You can find all your favorite podcasts, including Car Talk. That's right, Car Talk, not just on your radio, also available as a podcast with advice, tips, troubleshooting, and occasionally answers to car questions. Get Car Talk now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast for Tuesday, November 1st. That's right, it's November. A week from Election Day in our run of daily episodes right up until November 8th. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, editor, correspondent, recovering frog. <laughs> I think uh, we need to get the very important news that according to pictures on Twitter, Sam Sanders was a very convincing Ron Elving for Halloween. Actually, very few people understand this or have perceived this, but that was actually me doing Sam. Ah. <laughs> mustache and all. I, I, I thought the two mustache, the beard and mustache... <laughs> What really the piece de resistance? The hair, that. the hair matching part as well. I noticed. What was, really, what really amazing. made the the synergy was that Ron, you and I have the exact same glasses, and Sam borrowed my glasses to be you. That was the piece de resistance. Speaking of Sam, we had two pieces de resistance. How many were there, were there more? <laughs> Speaking of Sam, we know you miss him. He's been working on some other stuff. He'll be back on the podcast soon. In the meantime, no real update on the Clinton email story today. Check out Monday's episode for the latest on that. We dug into basically everything you need to know at this point. Uh, Let's hear what the candidates were up to on the trail today. Donald Trump was at a rally in Pennsylvania. He spoke uh, about an issue that you often hear spoken about in that state. We're going to open modern mines and take care of our great miners. Our miners have been mistreated horribly. We will be producing clean coal oil, natural gas, and shale energy. Former energy reporter Tangent here. A big reason why coal mining jobs have gone away is not regulations from the EPA, which is part of it. It's because of the major increase in natural gas hydraulic fracturing, the state that's benefited from that in terms of jobs more than any other state, Pennsylvania. You um, should see actually what Scott is doing right now. It's like full on hand gesture excitement <laughs> as we could dive into energy. So there you go. So the biggest applause lines of that rally in Pennsylvania were on that topic, though. Mike Pence was also at the event. He spoke about health care before Trump took the stage. In fact, health care was the build theme of that speech. So Trump was in Pennsylvania. Uh, Hillary Clinton was in Florida. She was introduced by someone we've heard of a few times over the last month. Alicia Machado. During the debate, Hillary said about me that, and I quote, she has become a U.S. citizen and you can bet she is going to vote this November. Machado, of course, was the Miss Universe contestant Clinton mentioned in the first presidential debate. That was kind of the peak baiting moment because then Donald Trump spent the rest of the week picking a fight with Elisa Machado. Uh, Here's some tape of Hillary Clinton at that Florida event. I mean, really, can we just stop for a minute and reflect on the absurdity of Donald Trump finding fault with Miss Universe? But you've got to ask, why does he do these things? Who acts like this? And I'll tell you who, a bully. That's who. 
So that's what's going on. We're all going to start out by talking about all the early voting that's going on. Early voting is happening all over the country at numbers much higher than any other previous election. About 26 million people have already voted. Uh, Asma, you have been following all this pretty closely. What are the most important states for us to look at uh, in terms of early voting numbers and what it means for who's going to win? So I talked to Michael McDonald earlier today. If you all don't know him, he is a fantastic person to follow on Twitter, where he regularly updates us all with various election early voting stats. He's a professor at the University of Florida. And, you know, in a nutshell, he told me there's a couple of key states where you can anticipate a large chunk of the electorate will vote before Election Day. Uh, Primarily, let's talk about Colorado and Nevada. He said about two thirds of voters will likely vote before Election Day, before November 8th. In Nevada, that's in-person early voting. Colorado is a, a, a state where everyone actually mails in their ballots this year. That's right. The other interesting states where a lot of folks will likely vote before Election Day are uh, Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, Iowa, and Florida, which the Clinton campaign you know, last week was touting the fact that they anticipate some 60 percent of people in Florida will cast their ballots before Election Day. This matters a great deal in places such as Arizona and Florida because we have seen in past years that, or even in the primaries this year, we have seen that the inadequacy of voting facilities, particularly in the big cities, has forced people to stand in line for hours and hours and hours. In Cal- in Florida, for example, in uh, 2012, I believe there were people who stood in line for four, five, six hours waiting to vote, waiting in a sense, all day long to vote, which is incredible. Uh, it's incredible that people were willing to do it. It's uh, it's disturbing that they were forced to do it, but it was because there weren't enough voting facilities and because the process of voting got more complicated and it took longer for people to process through. If you can get this many people to vote in advance, and if there's any kind of distribution of that early vote at all around the state, that shouldn't happen. And uh, early voting matters for that reason. It also really matters when it comes to the strategy of running a campaign, because a well-organized campaign, and we've seen that Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign is well-organized in this way, has a very specific game plan to get in touch with people, the people that they've been getting information about all year, and check in and check in and check in. And Have you voted? Have you voted? Can we help you vote? And last week I was filling in for Tamara Keith on the, the Clinton beat, and she continuously would hold rallies in early voting states, say like Florida, but they were strategically located so that at the end she would tell them, you know, hey, go vote. There's a polling place across the street, and that's no accident. Right now, the East Pasco Government Center, just a few minutes drive away, you can go there right after this rally and vote. Because we need everybody to stand up in this election. If you've got a mail-in ballot at home, send it in when you get home today. Don't wait to send it back. Talk to your friends and family and your neighbors, your co-workers. And Ron, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about the states that we're focusing on here as we kind of try and read the tea leaves. But it's important to point out that when we say, well, Nevada's looking good for Clinton or Florida, it's unclear. There's, uh, there's some troubling sides from Clinton. We're not talking about who's voted and, and vote counting already. What are we looking at here? Uh, we're talking about registered voters who have sought and returned a ballot. And that means that you have one party or another or people who have been identified, as Osman was saying, by a particular campaign as their likely voters responding to this call to vote. Now, we don't know 
how they actually voted. But the odds are, since we are told by all the information and evidence that we can find that the great majority of Democrats are voting for Hillary Clinton and the great majority of Republicans say they're going to vote for Donald Trump. So if you get out Democratic votes and you're the Democratic candidate, that's probably going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. We don't know for sure, but we don't actually see these ballots until election day, but those are the indicators. And you can also tell what demographics are showing up or returning those ballots to some degree, not in all states. But Michael McDonald, again from the University of Florida, told me there are some early indications that African-American turnout is not as high at this point in the game as it was in 2012 for Barack Obama. And that could be a troubling sign for Hillary Clinton, say, in a state like North Carolina. Yeah. A couple clarifications here. Uh, different states collect uh, different information about voters and different states make public different information about voters. So, for example, we were looking a lot at, at these big surges in Texas. Uh, Texas does not say whether people are Republicans or Democrats. Uh, in um, Florida, you have uh, information on which Hispanic voters are voting. And we've seen a huge increase in Hispanic voters, even though a lot of them are not registered to Democrat or Republican True. Party. So I will say Michael McDonald cautioned me that you know, some of what we're seeing with Hispanic turnout, it's not necessarily a huge surge of enthusiasm or organizational structure. Part of it is just population growth. There are a lot more Hispanics that are part of the electorate than there were four years ago or eight years ago. Uh, I, I do want to give some information now for, for people who, who want to obsessively follow this. Uh, Asma has name dropped Michael McDonald several times. That's because he's like the national expert on this. You can follow him on Twitter at elect project. And every day he has new information about who's voted in what states. Uh, there's somebody else out there, Daniel Smith. It's Elections Smith. I think just one S. Uh, he's got good information. And then in Nevada, uh, it's uh, John Ralston, longtime political reporter there, has a blog where every day he updates it with with the information from Nevada. And Nevada, is a, it's a key swing state. We've talked a lot before how, how sometimes it's kind of hard to get a sense of how Nevada is going based on the polls. But that's a state where they estimate about seven in 10 voters will vote early. And uh, every day they've been kind of saying this is how the Democrats are increasingly growing their lead every single day, especially in kind of the huge counties that where like Las Vegas and Reno are and, and the bulk of the population is. The other resource I found to be pretty handy is the New York Times Upshot. They, you know, do a lot of sort of demographic analysis and have found some indication that young voter turnout is down across the board compared to where it was again in 2012 for early voting. Mm -hmm. I should say that across the board, young voters are not the folks who traditionally show up in huge numbers to vote early. Yeah. Demographically, you don't have a lot of, you know, 22 year olds waiting in line to say show up to vote before uh, Election Day, but it's not at the levels it was in 2012. And we should say that in the two Obama elections, 2008-2012, we saw people under 30 outvoting people over 65. That is not typical in American elections. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, older retired people have more time, more, more focus, uh, more interest perhaps, uh, more information. They've really gotten into the election and they're in the habit of voting from having been doing it for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have people under 30 who may not have ever registered to vote. They may not be in the habit of voting. So for them to have actually provided uh, overall a larger percentage of the total electorate in the 
those elections was a big part of the reason Barack Obama won. Yeah. For folks who are kind of unclear on why early voting matters or why I should care, because you don't really know, as Ron was saying, we can't like open the ballots and say, ah, here you go. You voted you know, for Hillary Clinton and, yeah. and say Senator Rob Portman. We don't know if folks are splitting their tickets. But what you can say is that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they want to be building up those margins because it's kind of like going into the fourth quarter of a basketball game. If you're in the lead by, say, 10 points, you just have a better chance of winning the game. That's right. And it's not atypical. Uh, we saw this in the primaries where where uh, the vote on election day was different from the pre-vote. Yeah. And uh, it is entirely possible in some of these states, Nevada might be one example, where the vote on election day will go one way, but the vote that had already been cast before election day will go the other by enough mm-hmm. of a margin to over come whatever actually happened on election day. It's almost becoming like uh, each year it's more like election month than election day. It's The, the estimate is that uh, 34% of all total voters in America are going to vote early this year. Which will be the first time it crossed one third. Hmm. But, but I mean, the big question in all of this is younger voters. I mean, we've talked about how key they are to the Democratic coalition all year. Hillary Clinton is working so hard to get them to show up. And she's deployed her armada of big name surrogates. Uh, the biggest of those is President Obama. Uh, he did an interview with uh, Samantha B last night on her TBS show Full Frontal, and he made a specific pitch for younger voters to turn out and vote. You got to talk to them about the things that they care about. Talk to me as though I'm a millennial voter and get me interested in voting. Okay, because it's like, <laughs> I don't even know if there is like any point in voting. Like, they're both so totally flawed. Like, don't you even think it's time to like upend the whole system and just like break everything? First of all, if you're worried about whether you can afford to go to college or not, then Hillary Clinton's got a very specific plan and Donald Trump doesn't. If you care about climate change, that's not a small thing. So young people have a bigger stake in this election than anybody. I would hope that you'd be willing to take about the same amount of time that you spend just looking through cat videos on your phone (laughs) to make sure that the democracy is working. Sorry, I was just Snapchatting myself as a bottlenose dolphin. (laughs) (laughs) So he he, uh, he did like a pretty similar uh, sit down with Stephen Colbert a couple weeks ago too. He's been all over the place. He's back in Ohio tonight campaigning for Clinton. He'll be in North Carolina tomorrow, Florida later in the week. Asma, you've been covering Hillary Clinton. Uh, she and her top surrogates are really like just moving into those three states. Yeah. And, and I mean, in some other states, yeah. we should acknowledge, you know, tomorrow she'll be in Arizona. Uh, that's a state that I would say a couple months ago, nobody had on the map as even a toss up battleground state. But um, a decision that was announced like hours before the FBI email thing happened. Yes, exactly. And they, you know, her campaign manager came to the back of the plane and was really insistent that they are not trying to, quote, expand the map. Instead, they're really just focused on, hey, you know, if if they are not necessarily able to win one of those other toss-ups, maybe like Iowa or Ohio, they could compensate by winning uh, a state like Arizona. But I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, Scott, she is so laser-focused on key states, and in key states in particular, where a lot of folks will be voting before Election Day. And it's so fundamentally different than what we're seeing on the other side. Ron, how would you rank those states, Florida, North Carolina, and Ohio, in terms of 
in terms of favorability to Hillary Clinton, in terms of, you know, ability for her to make a case and, and, and win those states? North Carolina would be the one because it voted in 2008 for Barack Obama quite narrowly, but it did vote for Barack Obama one time, did not in 12. Uh, that is a state that is changing demographically, which has a growing Hispanic population and has always had a rather large African-American population and so has gone back and forth between the parties, uh, choosing governors from one party to the other, choosing senators from one party and then the other. Uh, It's really been a jump ball for a number of years now, but that all makes it a good place for her to concentrate and focus. We don't have all of those factors in Florida. Now, in Florida, you have a very changing Hispanic population. Uh, You have the prospect of a third straight win there in Florida for the Democrats. Obama carried it in 08 and in 12. So that would be a tremendous breakthrough for the Democratic Party in Florida, but that's been really back and forth. It's been either a tie, one or two or three points for either candidate most of the time. And then finally, Ohio. And that is probably a bridge too far for Hillary Clinton, but she's still looking pretty much even in the polls I mean, But there. that's what I think is so interesting, Ron, is, you know, for years, everyone talked about Ohio as this quintessential bellwether state. And arguably, Hillary Clinton could win the presidency without winning Ohio. Is that oh, because yes. Ohio changed or because the rest of the country changed? I think Ohio hasn't kept up with the pace that the rest of the country has been changing at. That's precisely right. I think Ozma, as our demographic expert, has <laughs> completely nailed it. So Ohio has lagged, and Ohio has been a pretty good ground for Trump, not only because it's wider than a lot of the other big industrial states, but also because it has so many people to whom the anti-trade, or at least the anti-trade agreement viewpoint that Donald Trump has championed is so appealing. You know what Ohio does have? A team that could win the World Series tonight. Oh. That is conceivable. Uh, the, of course, there is you know a case you to are be talking made to a Cubs for fan. Illinois. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Ron and his Chicago loyalty. I'm not an Absolutely. Indians fan, but the Detro family is all from Ohio. So I do understand. generations of Indians fans before I, I truly do understand. But the Cub thing, you know, that's not fandom. That's something closer to religion. I'm, mm. I apologize. There should have been a trigger warning for that. Comment, Ron. <laughs> so what do you think, Ron? I think we need to win, too. And we need to win them both on the road. And we need to win them one at a time. You know what? The last thing I'll say about that before we go to a quick break. Um, on 538 today, the odds of Clinton versus Trump winning are the same as the odds they have for the Indians versus the Cubs winning the World Series. About 75% for the Tribe and Hillary and 25% for Trump and the Cubs. You know, that's a little disturbing, I think, for a lot of people who uh, would, would like to uh, to see it, each of those particular <laughs> yeah. outcomes reversed. But uh, let's also bear in mind that, uh, that Nate Silver, the guy who's responsible for 538, uh, is kind of a sports guy and has been regularly characterizing the odds of Hillary Clinton winning this election as the same as an NFL kicker making approximately a 30-yard field goal. Asma, do you want to throw any more sports references in before we go to a quick break? <laughs> Last chance. No, I'm all good. I'll let you guys It's just like there. a tennis sir. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with no more sports talk but some listener mail. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital, 
do well and do good. All right, we're back. Let's do a bit of listener mail. And thanks again to everyone sharing your Halloween costumes. We loved seeing those today. A lot of Clintons, a lot of Trumps, a couple baskets of deplorables, one Ruth Bader Ginsburger. A couple of you even had a variation on a costume that at first glance is like a waiter with a Hillary Clinton shirt and a tray for food. It is a, wait for it, private server. Uh I saw that one. That was clever. That was clever. (laughs) Thanks again for all those photos. With a week to go, it is a nice break to see things like that. Uh, Here's a question we got this week via email from Leora in New York. Thank you for this podcast. Before this latest October surprise, people were talking about the potential for Democrats to retake the Senate. It got me wondering if there was a chance that Democrats could tie the Senate instead and what that might mean for that part of the legislative process. Thanks again, Leora. This is a tailor-made Ron Elvin question. You've got some history. You've got some some wonkery. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Leora. I, you, people are going to think that was a plant. <laughs> I uh, was actually around to witness this happen in the year 2000 when everyone was paying a lot more attention to the tied presidential election. But there was a tie in the Senate election as well. There were 50 seats for the Democrats, 50 seats for the Republicans. And as a result, uh, when it was determined that Dick Cheney would be the vice president, he became, as the vice president, the president of the Senate, that goes all the way back to the Constitution itself. That's the the job. Uh, Actually, the vice president doesn't go and preside over daily proceedings in the Senate. Pretty much it's ceremonial, Mm -hmm. swearing in day, State of the Union, that sort of thing. But uh, the vice president does get to break ties, including a tie to organize the Senate on day one. So when it was tied 50 to 50, Dick Cheney as vice president made it a Republican Senate. We could have that situation again, and whoever then is the new vice president, be it Tim Kaine, be it Mike Pence, would determine the majority control of the Senate. Ron, Mm. besides the organizational structure, can you point to any other monumental decisions in which the vice president has made or broken a situation? I'm just curious. I mean, they... If the if the president is the same party as the Senate majority, the, um, the vice president very often is used as a kind of extra vote so that they can pass a piece of legislation. So in the Clinton years, Al Gore often passed the federal budget by coming in and breaking the tie. Mm. If, on the other hand, there's a split, as we have right now, where Vice President Joe Biden, of course, is a Democrat and the Republicans control the Senate, he doesn't get to break any ties because they don't have any ties. Mm. If they don't have the votes to prevail, they don't bring it to a vote. Of course, this Senate hasn't brought much of anything to a vote, but Joe Biden just doesn't get to show up and break any ties. So if you're president of the Senate and it's not a tie, you have absolutely nothing to do in that job capacity. Theoretically, you can show up any day you want and bang the gavel and say, let's come to order and you can do other things. But basically, the Senate just ignores you. That, that's how the tradition developed way back in the early 1800s. They didn't like having the vice president come and preside mm. over them. So they basically ignored him and the vice president basically got the message and stopped coming. So they just come for big ceremonies, swearing in days, and to break ties. I have more questions about this, but I think Brent would like us to move <laughs> on. You can, cut all this out. History. you can cut all really this interesting. out. There uh, was one vice president who never moved to Washington. Oh. Yeah. Who was that? In the 1830s or 40s. He just he was hung from out Kentucky. in where? Kentucky. He didn't really want the job. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he stood in at the time, but he went on running his tavern back home. I, uh, so the diaries of Pennsylvania's first senator, William McClay, are mm-hmm. really interesting. And he spends a lot of time just sitting in the Senate and like writing mean things about John Adams. 
it's who like is presiding over tweets. the Senate. Yeah, the, he's like he's like right. mean tweeting John to the Adams. Mean tweets. Yeah, it's that's really so, funny. It's so weird. He calls him him like his rotundity. His <laughs> rotundity. <laughs> it's it's true. That's All great. Right, um, uh. Move it on. Uh, let's enjoy. This is a voicemail we got uh, from Patrick, who's overseas. Hello, NPR Politics Podcast. My name's Patrick. I'm an active duty member of the U.S. Navy, and I'm stationed in Siganella, Italy, Ooh. which is down on the island of Sicily. Nice. I just wanted to write in, speak in. I'm not sure what the correct verb is here, but my wife and I absolutely love your podcast. You've been keeping us updated over here, and I can't thank you enough for all of the service that you provide. And I think you all need a vacation. For sure, Ron does. I'm worried about that cough that he had. So, still there. I would like to offer my house. I've got a whole extra floor of the place here. Oh, he's inviting you, Ron. We've got a two-year-old and a newborn, and so it's going to be a little loud. But you are more than welcome to come and hang out with us. We've got excellent pizza and wine, and I think some sunshine and rest and relaxation would serve you all well. Uh Open invite. Thanks, y'all. Oh, oh, thank you, Patrick. Tough to turn that one down. My goodness. Pizza. Really? Sunshine. Two-year-old. <laughs> Ron, that was a specific invite to you. I feel I, like you I, need I, to make it happen. I, I really feel like I should be booking passage now. Well, thank you, Patrick. Uh, I feel like if you're in the military, your job is probably much harder than ours. And but... we should be thanking you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that sounds excellent. I think we need to make that happen. I think Ron is already, uh, he's got kayak up right now. So he'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> All right. In spirit. And and really thank you to everyone who writes in or or talks in as he put it. I think it still counts as writing in when you uh when you send a voicemail. We get so many letters and voicemails from listeners just saying thanks for the show and we really appreciate it. We send it around. It makes us it gives us a boost when we're trying to get through this day. Uh, if we could read or play them all on the show, we would, but that would probably get annoying very fast, but we want to say thank you. All right. That is it for today. We will be back tomorrow. Ron, good luck to your Cubs tonight. Thank you. My grandparents in Ohio will disagree with me saying that, but they don't listen to podcasts, so it's cool. As always, you can listen to more of our coverage on the NPR One app and your local public radio station. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Ron Elbing, editor-correspondent, halfway to Sicily. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.